The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. Church family, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to find your place in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and this morning we're going to look at verses 35 through 45. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And I'm in a series of messages entitled, What We Need Now. What We Need Now. Considering all that's going on in the world, I'm of the conviction that God's people uh, need some encouragement from Scripture. Uh, There's a lot of ideas and opinions out there, but I stand with this conviction. In Romans, Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar. We need to turn our perspectives to the Word of God and to be reminded of important truths and virtues uh, during these turbulent times. Uh, Last week, I began this series by looking at the subject of prayer. Uh, This morning, I want to continue uh, by looking at the subject of genuine humility. Last week, fervent prayer. This week, genuine humility. Now, Mark chapter 10 verses 35 through 45, uh, the gospel writer describes an incident from the life of Jesus in which Jesus' disciples were caught jockeying and fighting for positions of power and prominence in Christ's kingdom. And Mark describes how Jesus used that moment for an occasion for instruction. Uh, Jesus used their selfish request uh, to talk to them about the need for service and humility within the kingdom of Christ. Now, Oswald Chambers talks about in Most Forest Highest how humility really is a difficult thing. He, he says humility is a tricky thing. The moment you think you've got it, you've lost it. That's the nature of humility. I remember traveling to, to Houston on one occasion. Our staff at my previous church would go down there sometimes for our annual staff retreat. And one year we were in Houston and met uh, people, some people in ministry from Humble, Texas. Now that's how I would say it, Humble, Texas. They pronounced it humble. Texas. And they would argue over that, that the H is silent. And my thought was, well, do you call Houston, Houston? <laughs> Just kept that to myself, though, in dealing with Texans, right? So humility can indeed, being humble can be a tricky thing. When it comes to this virtue, we indeed need to look to the Word of God. The Bible teaches us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16, and is profitable. And we need the Word of God to speak to subjects like this. Jesus taught in John 17.17 that His Word is truth. It is authoritative for leading us in our relationship with the Lord. So at all times, especially in these times in which we're living in, we need to trust in the inspired book we call the Bible. We need to let Scripture be Scripture. We need to allow it to be authoritative for our lives. The same is true when it comes to this thing called humility. If we're not careful, we'll miss out 
on God's word and we will miss out on this virtue. And when we fail to embrace the humility the Lord wants us to embrace, we will suffer loss in our Christian life. We will not live up to our full potential in Christ. Our families will suffer loss and the kingdom of Christ will not advance as it could advance if we don't embrace genuine humility. So the question we face this morning is how? How as God's people can we embrace genuine humility, this virtue of Christ? Uh, Let me share with you five actions we need to take. They're found in the text before us. Five actions that we can take in order to embrace genuine humility. Number one, I want you to see, if we're going to embrace genuine humility, we've got to reject self-focused living. We've got to reject self-focused living. We see this starting in verse number 35. The Bible tells us, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. Now notice the nature of their question. They're playing, as A.T. Robertson would say, uh, little children's games. My children have asked me a question this way before. Daddy, we want you to do a favor for us. Why don't you ask me first? (laughs) Why don't you tell me what the favor is first, right? So the, the, the disciples here are using kind of a little bit of a manipulative tactic. Uh, we want you to do whatever we ask you. Verse 36, Jesus flatly asked him, what do you want me to do for you? They answered him, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. And now notice the nature of their question. They're asking Jesus, can we sit at your right hand and at your left hand when you come into your glory? Now, if you were to look at the passage preceding our current passage, you'll see that Jesus had just foretold of the way in which he would soon be crucified, but he would be raised after three days. Now, apparently the disciples mistook that prophecy for a prophecy concerning his kingdom on earth. The disciples think at any moment, Jesus is going to chase the Romans out of town and he's going to establish his kingdom here on earth. So with that thought in mind, they asked Jesus to give him positions of prominence in that kingdom. Now, an ancient ruler would rule on a throne. I'll use a chair this morning just as a way of example. Uh, This is just a simple chair similar to the one you're sitting on. Uh, But in the first century, we know a king would rule on a throne, be a lot more elaborate and illustrious than this chair I'm sitting on this morning. Uh, But fact remains, he was seated on a throne. A throne was a position of authority. It was a symbol of authority and power. Normally, things would work like this, you know, the king sitting upon his throne, and if someone has a dispute with their neighbor, they might come and kneel or bow before the king and make the king aware of their issue, their controversy, and the king would make a decision. The king would normally have his second in charge at his right and his third in charge at his left. 
Those two individuals would share in his power and share in his glory and oftentimes rule and make decisions with him. Now, notice what the disciples are asking for here. They want the positions of prominence, prestige, and power. They know based on Psalm 110 verse 1 that Messiah's kingdom would involve someone sitting at the right hand. They knew according to ancient custom as expressed in Hebrews 1.3 that the right and the left were positions of authority. They knew they had already been in Jesus' inner circle along with Peter. And so they approached Jesus and asked, can we have those positions of prominence, power, and prestige when you initiate your kingdom? And notice their problem. Notice the issue at hand. James and John are guilty of the age-old problem of self-centeredness. When it comes to this thing called humility, know that this is where it starts. Humility isn't necessarily about being of a quiet disposition, talking less, being more friendly. Sometimes we mistake such outer things as the essence of true humility. Notice here the problem in play. The greatest enemy of humility is just a simple self-centered focus. So if you want to embrace true humility, you need to learn to say no to the predominating principle of self in life, and you need to learn to live by the way of the master. Jesus, didn't he teach us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Matthew 6, 33. So you've got to say no to self and make Jesus and others your focus. Now I'm reminded of how we often approach taking pictures. I don't know about you, but my family takes a lot of pictures on our phones. I mean, I have to really watch it. My camera roll will get so cluttered, so many pictures I've, I've noticed when we take pictures now as a family or with a group of friends, we did this yesterday at a birthday party, uh, people will take pictures with their phones and then you might see them afterwards standing in the corner looking at their phone and doing this. They're pinching in, zooming in to the photo. And what are they focusing on? Themselves. Many times I've seen it. I'll see it in my own family. I won't name names. Pinching in on the picture, what do I look like in this photo? And before it can go on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the picture's got to be perfect. Now, nothing wrong with making sure that you look all right in your picture, but I'll just have to share a little pet peeve this morning. When you're the dad, it doesn't matter what you look like. <laughs> Mom can take a picture, and as long as her and the children look fine, it doesn't matter if I've got boogers hanging out of my nose slobber coming down my chin just as long as mom and the children look all right it's Facebook worthy recently I saw a picture why would you post a picture of your husband looking on that I was like <laughs> sometimes I say that in jest sometimes in life we can proverbially be the person zooming in and only focused on self realize the Lord's called you to love different live differently friend 
He's called us Matthew 22, 37 through 40. How are we live? Not with this inordinate, unhealthy self-focus. We are to live loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Let me tell you this morning, you'll get free. You'll be a whole lot happier when you get your eyes off of self. And when you stop living for self, you will finally discover what's involved in true humility. Reject self-focused living. Number two, this morning, I want you to see in order to live with humility, you can't be too spiritually sure of yourself. You can't be too spiritually sure of yourself. Jesus responds to the disciples' presumptuous request in verse number 38 and says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus here goes back to a metaphor from a king's reign. Remember, he had spoken of the throne, but now he also speaks of a cup. An ancient king would have his throne, his chair, but he would also have an elaborate illustrious vessel from which he drank. His cup, his goblet, usually made of some type of precious metal and then maybe encrusted with jewels, maybe it had inscriptions around it. It was valuable because it had been passed down over the years from king to king. And we see precedent for this in scripture. We see it from the life of uh, the pharaohs We see it from the life of Nebuchadnezzar. King had his cup from which he would drink and even sometimes practice divination. Jesus uses uh, this as a metaphor, as an example. He asked his disciples, can you drink from my cup? James and John knew that if you were in a position of prominence, power, and prestige, if you sat at the right hand or the left hand, sometimes the king, under certain occasions, would allow you to share his cup. So they hear, hear Jesus' metaphor, and they think, wow, he, he's following with what we're saying. Maybe we're going to get to sit at the right hand or the left hand. He's actually asking us if we want to drink from his cup. So by all means, yes, Lord, we're able. We'll drink from your cup. Little did they know that Jesus had a different metaphor in mind. We'll see it later at the Lord's Supper when he passes the cup. He had a different cup in mind. We'll see it later when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane and he sweats, as it were, great drops of blood and in anguish he cries out, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. What was the cup of which Jesus spoke? It was that cup of sorrow and suffering, that cup of shame that he would drink to the full at Calvary's cross on behalf of our sins. The disciples are unaware of this. And they boast, yes, we can drink of your cup. And notice their folly. They fall prey to the same thing Peter would later fall prey to when Jesus told him, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter proudly boasted, if all were to deny you, I would never deny you. And we see here the disciples exhibiting a struggle we will all encounter being too spiritually sure of ourselves. 
you want to have genuine humility in your life, you can't be a boaster like James, John, and Peter. You can't be one who acts as if you've got it all figured out, who lives as if you have all the answers. To live like you are a brain trust who's got a market on truth and how life is supposed to work. Notice, remember from Scripture, James chapter 4, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord that he may exalt you in due time. Oh, let's be humble and remember the admonition of the Proverbs that pride cometh before destruction. Let's remember the admonition of 1 Corinthians 10, take heed. You think you stand, you might just fall. Oh, here's a great warning from Scripture. And here we see the essence of true humility. The humble person rejects self-focused living, but the humble person is also not too sure of himself. The humble person says with Paul, I will boast in the cross of Christ alone. Remember waiting table, someone earlier in the foyer mentioned going to a birthday dinner at Papado, and I worked at Papado for several years on Windy Hill Road in Marietta. I worked at Papado, you had to wear a white starch dress shirt with a black bow tie and black slacks and black shine shoes and a black vest. Had to dress like a penguin in order to go to work. Papado, uh, one thing that's unique, you may have never noticed this, but there was a rule for all of the wait staff that you could never carry by hand any item to the table. You had to carry it on one of those uh, large trays. E even if somebody ordered a simple beverage, a refill, you weren't allowed to use a pitcher to fill up their drink. You had to bring out that fresh sweet tea on a big tray. Thank you very much. Got Tzilla over here drinking all the tea. Got to carry it out on a tray. I remember on one occasion, it was a Tuesday night, one of our busiest nights because there was a lot of convention uh, business in town in Atlanta and Marietta, and I had a table of 10 businessmen and was waiting on them and clearing the table afterwards of all the plates from all the food they had rung up on the corporate credit card. Clearing off the table and got that tray loaded, picked it up over my head, and I said, guys, I'll be right back with your check in a moment. The guy at the head of the table, the boss, asked me, he said, let me ask you something. Have you ever dropped one of those trays? I kind of boasted and said, well, I've got pretty good at it, balancing like this, actually. I said, in all my years working here, I've never dropped one of these trays. And I said before you, this isn't preacher exaggeration this morning. I walked away from that table and on the way to the kitchen, for the first time in my illustrious career at Papado, I dropped the tray. Came back to the table. They had heard the crash all the way at the table. That wasn't you, was it? Yeah, thanks for saying something. Jeez. <laughs> was too sure of myself. I wasn't on the lookout. wasn't on guard. Know this, see the real nature of Christian humility. Humility is not about just being quiet and not talking. It, humility involves this rejection of self-centered living. Humility involves a holy suspicion of self, a holy awareness that one is susceptible to failure, and a holy trust in the Lord. How do we embrace genuine humility? Uh, reject uh, self-focused living. Don't be too sure of yourself 
spiritually. Number three, trust that the Lord is in control. Trust that God is in control. We see this as we continue in verse number 39. The Bible continues. It says, Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Now, notice Jesus here proving his divine nature. You have in front of you an instance in Scripture in which Jesus prophesies. This book was given by inspiration. It's been passed down for us, and we here see Jesus giving the future as if it is history and demonstrating he is the Son of God. Because we will read later, if we were to go on and read our Bible in Acts chapter 12, that James indeed later would drink the cup of suffering. King Herod would have him put to death by a sword. We read later when we get to Revelation chapter 1 that John would also drink the cup of suffering. He would be exiled to an abandoned forsaken island on Patmos. So Jesus prophesies, boys, you are going to suffer. You are going to drink the cup of shame and sorrow. And then he tells them, but to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, notice the way that Jesus confesses that he doesn't really have the power to give positions of authority in the kingdom. Now, some of the cults that we find, American cults in 21st century America that de-emphasize the deity of Christ or deny the deity of Christ would take a passage like this and say, see there, Jesus didn't believe he was God. He recognized God had more authority or power than him. Uh, Such heresy comes from a misunderstanding of the incarnation. Uh, Go read Philippians 2, 5 through 10. It teaches that when Jesus came to earth, he submitted and surrendered himself to the will of the heavenly father. Why does Jesus share this here? He he never quit becoming God. He was always 100% God, 100% man. Why does he share this here, that he was under the authority of the Heavenly Father? He wants to, in a subtle yet profound way, show his disciples that they needed to have the same frame of mind that he had. They needed to submit themselves to the authority and governance of the Heavenly Father. He goes on to tell them, That the positions of authority are for those for whom it has been prepared. He uses perfect tense language in the original Greek language of the text. Refers to an action that has happened in the past that has abiding results for all time. Now, this is interesting. Jesus is speaking about positions of authority in the new heaven and new earth. He spoke of them here 2,000 years ago, and these positions of authority still are not in place. They are yet future. But when Jesus spoke of them in the past, he spoke of them as if they had already been established. Why? He's wanting to emphasize the fact 
that we have a good, good God who exists outside of time and he is in control of all things. And he is in control of eternity. And he is in control of the future rewards we will receive in eternity. Now get this, the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, the Bible in Revelation chapter 21 teaches that believers will receive rewards in the new heaven and the new earth. In fact, the Bible teaches in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be kings and rulers and princes and that in Christ's kingdom. How can there be kings, princes, and rulers? Well, the Bible teaches that the Lord is going to give certain believers certain positions of authority for all of eternity. Now, Jesus here reminds his disciples of this truth. Why? To remind them that the Lord is in control of judgment. Jesus knew that such truth would give his disciples the perspective they needed. See, what's going on in life when we get caught up in fighting for our rights and speaking our mind and arguing for how we think things need to go? What's going on in our life when we get caught up in fighting to be number one? Well, there's a lot of things going on, but I can tell you one thing that is going on, and it's this. We've lost sight of the sovereignty of God. We've quit trusting in the Lord. I had an older man from one of my previous ministries call me not long ago, and he was really unnerved by a lot of what he was seeing on social media. He said, it seems like a lot of pastors now, pastors, he was speaking of pastors, he said, it seems like a lot of pastors use social media as a platform to brag. And he said, I've got to tell you, I just read a lot of the stuff I see, and it seems to me, a lot of these nationally known ministry leaders and pastors, he said, it seems like they just flat don't trust the Lord. The way that they've got to toot their own horn, it seems like they don't have confidence that God's in control. Now, we could say that about pastors, but we can equally say that about Christians at large as well. Know this, when we get caught up in life where we're jockeying in for position, jockeying to be recognized, we've lost sight and lost trust in the sovereignty of God. Know this, when we're given over to worry and anxiety and fear in an unhealthy way, we've lost sight of the sovereignty of God. Know this, when we're eaten up by jealousy and bitterness, we've lost sight of the sovereignty of God. If we will learn as believers to trust that the Lord is in control, It'll do a lot to produce humility in our lives. Oh, friends, think of Jesus. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was rejected. He was cruelly per persecuted. He was crucified. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that when reviled, he did not revile in return. Instead, listen, Jesus committed himself to the one who judges justly. Oh, and in this world of so much criticism, and so many controversies, and so much complaining, may we know how in the midst of all of the white new noise to keep our spiritual wherewithal and just trust in the sovereignty of God. And that type of trust will produce a humble heart that will give great glory to Jesus in this dark world.
How do we embrace genuine humility? We need to reject self-focused living. We can't be too spiritually sure of ourselves. Uh, number three, we've got to trust that the Lord's in control. Number four, I want you to see from our text that we've got to keep our focus on service. Keep our focus, number four, on service. Got to make service our focus. Look at how the text continues. Verse number 41, it says, when the 10 disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Now notice the other 10 are angry. They're furious. Why? Because the, the other two beat them to the punch. The other two asked for positions of authority before they had a chance to ask for positions of authority. I think of it like growing up. I remember we might go out shopping, and sometimes it might just be my dad. He's taken us three kids out, my brother, my sister, and I. And we go to the grocery store, and we had this game where we had to call shotgun to see who would ride up front with dad. So maybe we're leaving Kroger and walking out to the parking lot. My sister says, shotgun. And I think, ah, man, I hate it. She always remembers before I do. So I thought I would try, I got real clever. I thought, okay, on the way to the store, right when we get out of the car to go into the store, before anybody else thinks of it, I'll yell, shotgun. My sister made that against the rules. <laughs> ah, man, she always wins. Now that's what's going on in the text here. The disciples called shotgun, James and John called shotgun before the other 10 could. So they're mad, they're furious. Notice this, all 12 wants positions of authority. And so Jesus, verse 42, called them over and said to them, that is, he calls the other 10, boys, huddle up, God teach you too. You're a bunch of self-centered knuckleheads as well. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. The word Gentiles referred to non-Jews. For a good Jew, the word Gentile was a synonym for a godless person. Here, Jesus reminds his disciples, listen, Gentiles, people who don't know God act like this. This isn't how you ought to live. Notice what Jesus is teaching his disciples. Oh, get it? Remember this in a 21st century culture where we're often told the church needs to be more like the world? Uh, listen to what the Bible here teaches us. There are to be Christian distinctives. The ways of the Lord are often totally contrary to the ways of the world. Jesus tells the disciples, verse 43, it's not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. Now, Jesus has talked like this before in Mark's gospel. He said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Here now he speaks of a servant. He tells his disciples, guys, I want you to be servants. Don't be like the godless Gentiles. Have your focus on serving. Now, the word translated servant here is the one that was used in the first century, eventually, of the deacon ministry, diakonos. 
It's a word that referred to a person who waited on tables and served food in a household. Servant. He also uses the word slave here. It's a Greek word, uh, doulos, and it referred to one who was the physical property of a master, one owned by a master, one who was obliged to follow a master's command. Jesus takes these two terms and he marries them together to remind us of the focus that we ought to have as we live in this 21st century world. Service on one hand and slavery on another. Service in that our focus is on meeting the needs of others. I, myself, me and mine isn't our number one prerogative. Instead, we, when we interact with people, when we minister when we worship together, when we work together, the focus is on others, serving others. And then this word slave is a reminder that in all of this, we are ultimately owned by a heavenly father. And we serve at his disposal and his commands are our commands. We are not our own, 1 Corinthians 6, 17 through 19. We have been bought with the price. Therefore, we ought to glorify God in our body and our spirit, which are his. Here's scripture. If you want to have genuine humility, you've got to make service your focus. This past week, after my talk, my mention in a sermon last week about an old Nintendo video game, I got online and thought, well, I thought, you know, I don't have my own gaming system. Maybe I can find these games online, however. And I found this website where they've got all the old video games from when I was a kid, and I can play them all. So I was sucked into that on my day off, and Will sat down next to me on the couch, and one of my favorite games was James Bond Goldeneye. Nintendo 64. Now, I may be wrong, but I think we'll be able to play that in heaven. Not sure. Ah, there's killing in it. Okay, no, there's no death in heaven, so that won't be allowed. But I was in that first stage, and it just all came back to me. I had my finger on the keyboard, and pow, 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 pow. I was 007, man. I was moving through that stage, that first level, like it was nothing. Russians had nothing on me, boy. Wearing them out. And then I forgot, hey, there's this feature where you can take your AK and you can zoom in. And it brings up the sights. And you can put it right on the guy's head or body shot. I thought, "Uh uh-oh, better not let mommy see me playing this with the boys. All right, this may not be too good. But anyways, hey, know this in life. Here's the perspective of Jesus. He wants you to have your sights on service. And let me help you out this morning. When you embrace that mindset in life, you'll be a whole lot happier. A lot of your frustration, a lot of your hurt and your pains and the negativity in your life comes from being focused on what you want, how you think things ought to go. I've learned this from personal experience. When I get the when I can develop the mindset of Jesus of being poured out, it brings a whole lot more happiness and joy in life. How do we develop this genuine humility? Let me share one last truth with you. We, we see here that we've got to seek gospel transformation. Seek gospel transformation. I, I really want you to hear this this morning. You can't develop 
Christian virtue apart from Jesus. There's a reason in Galatians chapter 5 that Paul speaks of the work of the flesh, the works of the flesh. Because the people at Galatia were trying to live the Christian life through their own strength, through mere human performance and man-centered behavior modification. Oh, how sad it is that so many Christians live in church all their life, but they never discover the secret, Charles Stanley would call it, the wonderful secret of spirit-filled living. They never discover what it's like to have Christ produce his life within them. Notice this, Christian life, the Christian life isn't about you just trying to be good or trying to be humble through your own efforts. It is a, the Christian life is about the Holy Spirit of Christ within you, making you a new creature in Christ. Now, Jesus here wants to instruct his disciples in this matter, and he tells them in verse 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. Now notice that Jesus is, first of all, an example in service. Just as when he washed his disciples' feet, Jesus here is saying, you ought to serve people as I serve people. But I want you to see that we have more than an example in Jesus. Get this this morning. He hasn't called you to merely follow him as an example. He has called you to allow him to be an empowerment in your life. He is not just a model of Christian service. He is the means of Christian service as well. He is not, listen, Jesus isn't just a pattern of Christian service. He is the power for Christian service as well. And notice how he says this at the end of the verse. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and listen, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom there is a word used in the ancient world to speak of the price one had to pay in order for a prisoner or a captive to be released. It's used here as a depiction of our salvation. Before we met Christ, we were shackled to sin. We were captives to death. We were in a state of hostility to God. We were slaves to Satan, in bondage to the curse and to the fall. But when the grace of Jesus appeared, amen, when the grace of Jesus appeared, the shackles of sin were broken. We were released from bondage. We were forgiven of all of our unrighteousness, and the Spirit of God came to live within our souls. And now we are new creatures in Christ. And according to Romans, we are no longer slaves to sin. We do not have to obey that old master. And according to Romans, now we can instead render our bodies, our lives as instruments to righteousness to Christ. We have a new master. So guess what? We don't have to be in bondage to pride. We don't have to live as slaves to selfishness. We don't have to be overrun by arrogance. We, through the power of Christ within us, can be transformed. We, through the Holy Spirit, can live with genuine humility. 
We simply have to live in a faith relationship and allow the fruits of the Spirit to be produced by Christ in us. So know this, Christian. We've said a lot of things about humility, but at the end of the day, you can't produce it. It's produced in your life by God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so the only way to really achieve any degree of humility is to walk with the Lord, seek him by faith, die to self, take up your cross daily, and follow him. And when you're surrendered to him in such a way on a daily basis, Jesus will produce his life through you. And others will see the life of Jesus. He said of himself, I am meek and lowly of heart. Let Jesus be Jesus in you so that he'll get the glory through your life. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.